Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Alright my friends, welcome back to another episode of Shared History Under the Kilt. It's a Scottish history podcast, but you should have figured that out by now. (laughs) That's correct. Well noted. I'm Adam McNamara. And I'm Natalie Younger. And we are your hosts for today's historic journey through lesser known moments in Scottish history. Which, if you're American, is most of it. (laughs) That's, That's true. And... Arguably, if you're Scottish. (laughs) I mean, I would hope that you know a little bit more than I do, but I've already learned so much. (laughs) That's right. So have I. Oh, good. (laughs) So um, how's your day been today, Nat? Tell me. Oh, it is good. I am caffeinated. I am hydrated and I am ready to party. Can you be both those things? Yes. uh... That's like the conflict, right? It just means that I have to go to the bathroom in both ways, is what it means. <laughs> That's what... Like a racehorse. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where this is going, Not Well, that's all right. I don't know where history is going most of the time. There's so um, many twists and turns. Okay, great. Well, what is under the kilt today anyway, Nat? Tell me. I'm so glad you asked. Underneath my kilt, I have a Highland Dirk. <laughs> and it's sharpened. Okay. Why? Uh, you never know when you're gonna need a blade, and you know. Really, <laughs> that's babe. dark, Nat. Babes with blades, baby. I mean, you're American as well. Shouldn't you have like an Uzi or something? <laughs> yeah, but like everyone has an Uzi in America, so it's like <laughs> it's more unique if I have like a broadsword or a Highlander. So well. sometimes I have an axe, but that's just so that I can say and my axe. <laughs> Do you not get cold with the metal on your skin? Uh, no, it's a really hot, humid Chicago summer. It's honestly, it, it's, I need it. It, it cools me down. <laughs> well, I don't know what's going on with your life in Chicago now. <laughs> Can you just really quickly picture someone wearing a kilt with like a garter belt? And instead of just having like a little dagger in the garter belt, <laughs> they have a What, you mean a ski and do? Because we I do wear ski and do's, little knives in our socks. Exactly. Then that, but like, but like a garter belt would be higher up on your thigh. That would be. So and the ski and do's technically not under the kilt. It's just. At the I top mean, of the it top. is just a different definition of under. Okay. I'm glad that we've unpacked the semantics of this. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, I kind of know what's under the kilt. I was just like leading you along. Wow. It's okay. I'll put my sword away. <laughs> Today's guest is an actor, writer and producer um, Over the last 10 years his career has Well, I mean, it's a wide range of stage and screen uh, There was 1917, Outlander, uh, King Lear on Amazon uh, He's been on BBC, 
loads of stage work in the in the West End and the Sheffield Crucible and tours and just one of those actors just just working all the time. <laughs> wow, it sounds like you really hate this guy. <laughs> why is why is he here? <laughs> Because we invited him, and he was oh, kind yeah. enough oh, to yeah. oblige. That's right. That's right. Um, he because uh, he he's a writer as well, and he has a, a book, uh, a spoken word novel called Trouble in Spiritland, which is um, well, it's a it's kind of a hard hitting reflection on wealth inequality and uh, social divides within Western society, which is being developed into an immersive audio drama with uh, the Scot- Scotland's Art Council and Creative Scotland. So, without further ado, Paul Tinto, welcome to Under the Kilt. Alrighty, hello, how you doing? <laughs> you sitting there with a big head. <laughs> Absolutely, I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to be working all the time? <laughs> <laughs> We're manifesting it for you. We're putting it out there. Exactly, yeah. I was like, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> I want to meet him. <laughs> How's it going, man? You're right. I'm very good. I'm absolutely grand. Happy to be here. Thanks very Excellent. much for asking me along. I mean, I, I was noticed that in that introduction, it definitely didn't. Uh, I didn't hear the word historian, which is uh, very true. But thanks for having me anyway. <laughs> but I'm sure what you have to tell us is incredibly interesting. And when we introduced ourselves, we also did not include the words historian. So it's you're in good amateur company. Well, that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point in the podcast. The whole point is that we're laymen learning stuff that we should have been taught at school. Great, great. Right? Just, in my case, maybe just making stuff up. No, 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 no. Like, I didn't know a couple of things. <laughs> it can't be made up because I need this stuff for pub quizzes. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's what we're doing. We're just preparing everyone for the historic history section of a pub quiz you're like that (laughs) come on let's do it everyone thinks that i'm going to be good at the history section of a pub quiz because i like (laughs) because i have an interest in history and because i have now two history podcasts and i always have to explain like i do research for that day and then bloop gone out of my head oh, like yeah. almost immediately i'm the same i've got a memory like a sieve like a colander it's i mean I, i'm pub quiz wise i think i'm better at like bringing a team together like, like i know just cheering them on like guys win general knowledge you know sort of bring them together for the pub i'll get the first round in then lo and behold i'm in this brilliant pub quiz team and i've got no knowledge to add to it <laughs> you're the one you do you have like really good do you have good handwriting at least do you volunteer to be the scribe and to like yeah write yeah the yeah, yeah yeah or at least i can read it but i'll always volunteer to hold the pen or then just pass it on to somebody else <laughs> so brave that's so no. brave of you paul <laughs> Yeah, I I don't retain I don't retain anything of use. If you want to know copious amounts of like '90s and early 2000s song lyrics, I got you covered. Uh, if you wanted me to remember monologues that I haven't had to do for 15 years, I've got you covered. <laughs> anything else? There's not room. There's yeah, not room. No. None of that, please. Yeah, yeah. I think most of my brain's still clogged up with just Disney lyrics from when yeah. I was a kid. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> Very important data and information. The whole story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole thing, line for line. Well, that's great because yeah. you know your your book is being adapted into an audio drama, so we can do an audio drama right now of all of Toy Story. 
Well, actually, you know, Paul and I have known each other for a good while now, and we were in a play called Black Watch with the National Theatre of Scotland. And when we both first went out with that play, we were covering five parts each. And there was this thing, this routine that we used to get into. <laughs> when the play started, we would do a two-man Black Watch <laughs> in the dressing room fast so then we can go and get a coffee. <laughs> I love this. And yeah. I want, I want like... I've been saying that I want to be able to watch the like production of Blackwatch that that you guys obviously and like Jack Loudon and and Richard were all in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I just want that. Now I just want like somebody <laughs> to have like a little pen cam a version of just you guys backstage. A, a fringe, a fringe Edinburgh fringe yeah. version of it. Yeah. But then it should also be noted that eventually when we got to New York, Adam had to go on full time. So that was just left with me sitting in the dressing room just doing the whole thing to myself <laughs> <laughs> before I could religiously go out and get my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so my my point in this, my point is, he doesn't have a mind like a colander. <laughs> Maybe in some aspects of his life. Yeah. In history. <laughs> That's Welcome okay. Welcome to the, this history podcast. Yeah. The world, though, the world has a mind like a colander when it comes to history because we keep repeating our, the same shit. Yeah, because we never learn. We're just rinse and repeat. Yeah, absolutely. Is there uh, an area in history or a time in history that you have always found like particularly interesting? That's a very good question. I like, I mean, the, in fairness, because I think there is always the cliche of just, you know, the things you weren't taught in school. Like, actually, um, my high school, I really liked my history teachers. It was, you know, there's always, like, one or two teachers uh, in your school that are just, like, the inspirations for whatever you go on, whatever you want to do. And there was this teacher, Brian Miller, who, I mean, don't get me wrong, I can't remember half of the stuff <laughs> we covered now. But you had, you remember you had a good time. But I remember I had a good time. And he would, he would often kind of go off on random little tangents. And those are the things that I like end up remembering. Like, I don't know how suddenly from covering Prussia, we ended up getting on to uh, how in the eve of Scottish devolution, Westminster went and redrew the maritime border up the North Sea to make sure they still had a stake in oil. And that's when I stopped probably looking at the ceiling and I was like whoa hang on sorry what <laughs> like, cut, cut what back on that what did you just say <laughs> yeah no. so I mean so like I've always been I've always been sort of fascinated about bits and bobs of of any part of Scottish history I guess but then I guess the first time I really started paying attention to it was probably around 2013-2014 when the Scottish independence referendum started coming up and then I started to really invest myself more in uh, the a lot of sort of the social socialist history of Scotland. A friend for his, my thirtieth bought me a Scottish history, Scottish history books like the social or the Scottish workers' history of the socialist workers' history of Scotland, and it took me about two years to read because like <laughs> dates just don't work with me and just it's so dense. But I got through it eventually. But from that has ended up sort of really influencing me more and where I find things interesting. And so I reckon probably like around the industrial um, industrial revolution and through from like, uh, I'd say I'm more interested in, let's say, <laughs> Culloden onwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I also, I appreciate that benchmark for anyone in America whose Scottish history education is probably just Outlander at this point. Outlander and Mary Queen of Scots. I know, I know. <laughs> Like all, all we really covered in 
uh, European history in my high school that I remember of that was like more Scotland specific was was Mary Queen of Scots like was just that narrative so uh anyone who only knows Outlander (laughs) the the benchmark the milestone of Culloden is is useful but I guess the other thing is though I've started talking to my parents a lot more about their upbringing just because I'm at an age now and I'm much more fascinated about it so I've between like I've started recording my parents and learning where they grew up and all the stuff of their life so I've become much more fascinated about the 1950s 60s 70s 80s on like that chunk of time and chatting to aunts and uncles about it and just yeah I don't know why but I guess it's because I have something to relate it to and it seems to more directly impact me now but like even things from music culture to everything that sort of influenced everything to where we are politically now especially in the last 50 years it seems to like after world war Two, just things went so rapidly socially and economically and it was a really really fascinating time to be around yeah yeah it's really interesting that you're like to kind of, you're giving yourself footholds in your own history like by understanding the more recent history and not just being like oh it's stuff that kind of just happened and it's kind of fuzzy and just a big kind of idea to to like get the, get the scoop from your parents or your grandparents and be able to contextualize it to now where we are in modern day it like makes it does give everything that more that importance and that context because you understand where it came from or how it progressed yeah contextualizing that was the word i couldn't figure out <laughs> can remember that was the word you hit the nail on the head <laughs> colander head colander head <laughs> <laughs> so paul um, whereabouts are you from then um originally I am from the Isle of Arran of Scotland's west coast, a uh, small little island, uh, just yeah down. It's, a, it's the southern one of the southernmost of all the western of all of the islands down the west coast. If you drew a line out from Glasgow, it's kind of like level with that. So yeah, I was born and bred. It's about five five thousand population, but fifty two miles round. Wow. And uh, yeah, so a bit of a culture shock when I moved to London at the age of the mainland. The mainland, <laughs> I know the mainland. Um, I don't. I genuinely, I don't think I'd actually. Not because I was. Well, no, I probably was a bit naive. But there was. I mean, I'd. My family's grown up in Glasgow. It's not as if I'd never stepped foot in a city before. But London's just a different kettle of fish. And so yeah. when I went down there when I was eighteen, I, I hadn't ever. I don't think I'd ever actually locked my front door, my entire life, just because I grew up in a culture where you just didn't um and also the first time i was in london i was going out with a friend we were coming back from a pub and when we said how are you getting back tube taxi and i just i suggested hitching a lift (laughs) (laughs) she's still just looked at you like what oh absolutely it's a good friend of mine a really good good actor rebecca humphreys she she just turned to me and said she yeah she said what i was like just thumb a lift see he was going back towards hammersmith she was like, okay, first of all, don't ever, ever suggest that ever again. <laughs> London, Paul. I know. And B, don't ever do that. I was like, well, yeah. never understand. <laughs> and then did she go, you, have you locked your door before you came in tonight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Paul's like, I leased my flat and he gave me these like jangly things and I don't really know what they're for. <laughs> I was like, this is interesting. And I, so I hung him on a string outside as like a wind chime. That's what they're for, right? I mean, I feel as if I'm doing everyone on Anne a bit of a disservice. It's not <laughs> as if I mean, 
probably more a reflection on me, not the <laughs> naivety of all these people that grew up on the island. I'm sure everyone was very capable and had the foresight to lock a door, but... <laughs> Just not Paul. <laughs> that reminds me of the first time I went out in London and, uh, uh, like, when, when I moved down there and I was getting... I, got, I thought I'd get a taxi home and I got a, I got one of the, the black cabs from the central uh, the centre of London to North London <laughs> and I was drunk and I was just in the back and I was kind of like just like dozing in and out and then I, I got to, I got to the house and he went that's 35 pounds <laughs> and I went why <laughs> I was like what have you taken me back to Scotland <laughs> like can I haggle is this a <laughs> yeah Oh God! It was just, it sobered me up. Put it that way. I bet yeah. it. He's just like because that's what the meter says. <laughs> <laughs> now fuck you, uh, pay me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so tell me, tell us uh, more about Arne then, dude. What, what's what's like the what's up some interest in history about that place? <laughs> yeah, that's probably something I should know a bit more about. Again, I mean, in fairness, can't take it out of my education. People did teach me about things. You know, there was a heritage centre there. We went to it. Do I remember anything? <laughs> Nope. You've got a cracking scone. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, but, I mean, uh, I mean, unfortunately, because I know that Adam is a real fan of um, of whiskey, and actually, Aaron does have a really, really fascinating illicit whiskey history. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I know nothing of it, but I know that... I know that but you know it exist. exists. You tease. Yeah, I know it exists. <laughs> it was, I mean, at the time when... Uh, at the time, I think it was around like the 1780s for about 40, 50 years, uh, the government decided to make all whiskey uh, illegal. Or no, they, they had to be, uh, they licensed it. Yeah, so yeah, they, the new they, they licensed it, they taxed out, yeah. it. So then loads and loads of illicit, illicit little distilleries came up and Aaron was just awash with them. And so I think there's still to this day loads and loads of bothies. Um, and in fact, actually, there's a book. I've not read it yet, but there's a book by a guy that lives in the island. Uh, I think it's called, like, Aaron, Aaron Water. Yeah, I think it's pretty sure it's called Aaron Water, and it's all about the history of, of Aaron's illicit whiskey days. Um, oh, which, yes. once they made it legal again, it kind of ruined them all because none of them had the infrastructure to uh, yeah. carry it on. Yeah, that's right. Because, like, uh, Lefroig did something very, very similar. I'd love to get someone on to talk about Lefroig, actually. Because um, they, they've they, when uh, the prohibition and everything kicked in, they still went to America and sold it. <laughs> but they sold it as medicine. Because people would smell it and go, what's this? And they'd smell it. And because it's got that kind of medicinal smell, I don't... I used to think that. Not anymore. I think it smells beautiful. But um, people would say, oh, that's, yeah, that's medicine. So they were able, still able to, to is, sell is it. Because it, it was, like, more peaty yeah it like, that? it's, it's uh, lefroy i mean it used to be the most the, the most heavily peated whiskey listen this is dangerous i just want to let you know this is dangerous <laughs> we're going to take up the whole episode of me talking about whiskey and i and i really would i don't want but anyway this uh but like when when the taxes came out uh, you'll find that a lot of distilleries were are official around the 1800 mark and that's when those new tax rules came in. But when everyone visited Scotland, they'd be like, um, "Can we get, uh, can we get some whiskey?" And they'd be like, "Yeah," and they'd pour the stuff out that's they'd made since you know the the eighteen hundreds. And they'd be like, "No, no, no, the, the other stuff." <laughs> and it was like all this like under the table kind of all that all that stuff. And it was the stuff made before the tax rules and all like the regulations and stuff. But anyway, I am not, I'm going to stop talking about whiskey. <laughs> Before we go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> yeah. coming forward, forward, I do have later. to say, 
when you when you were in Chicago with Blackwatch, did anyone make you drink Malort? Did anyone make you try Malort? I can't remember. If you don't remember someone making you taste like a liquor that pretty much tastes like potpourri and cough syrup, then it you no. then you didn't. No, I uh, would remember that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I feel like you'd remember. It's it's when you said medicinal, that's where my head went because it's wormwood, so uh-huh. it's like very it's very bitter and botanical at the same time. Uh-huh. When you guys come and visit me, I'll. We'll drink your fake whiskey. <laughs> it's not whiskey. I'll, but I'll haze you. I'll haze you with, with a with a liquor that makes you go. This isn't that bad. And then immediately after, with the aftertaste, be like, ha ha. And then you're in. Then you're in accident and emergency. Like what? Ha- what happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in fairness, and whenever you come to Scotland, definitely hop over to Isle of Arran and go and check out their distilleries. They've got cracking whiskey over there. Yeah. Yeah. And they've just been rebranded and stuff. The bottles look amazing. Yeah, the bottles are really, really cool. It's yeah. a beautiful island, actually, just to go and visit. They call it Scotland in miniature because down the bottom, it's more flat. Up the top, it's much more mountainous. It kind of reflects Scotland as a whole, and it's kind of got it's kind of got a bit of everything. And it does have an amazing history around it, especially... I mean, it was really, really influential in World War Two. Ships, you know, there was a place where uh, lots of um, ships would come and dock um take shelter and the hospitals were used and this the where i where i went to school i'm pretty sure that building has been knocked down now sadly but it was used i'm not sure it was a hospital it had a, it, would, it was used during the war possibly as uh for extra hospital beds and stuff like that i could be wrong someone's going to comment on this just disgusted Good. about my we dis- welcome we welcome the corrections savagery of our in the history but yeah it's an amazing place i mean it sounds shite <laughs> I mean, I bet you the views are terrible, mm-hmm. and you know, I bet you spent a lot of time just going, "No, this is ter- I don't want to live here anymore." Yeah, it's just nothing but looking up in the night and just seeing complete starry, starry nights. Yeah. Or nothing Gross. Like, like, in that. I mean, seeing the sea whenever you look out your window. Every village yeah. just around a coast, just breathing in fresh sea air. Yeah, it's a terrible it's place it to go. Sounds up. painful, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm Absolutely. so sorry. I'm so sorry. That you had to <laughs> that you had to go through all of that. Not a delicate at all. Can I call a quick time out so that we yeah. can play a game? Yeah. What game's that then? Oh, it's talking Scots. <laughs> yes. Let's do that. All right. For those of you who don't know, talking Scots is when we invite our producer Kathleen on. Say hello, Kathleen. Hello. And you can tell by her voice that she is a filthy American like me. <laughs> what? And we, uh, and and our lovely guest is going to give us a word in Scottish or in Scots, and we have to pretend we know what it means. Well, and we you're all... going to take a stab in the dark. Yes. With, with your fancy knife under your lot, belt. With my Highland A dark. lot of stab. <laughs> I need an axe. It's more of a whacking situation yeah. than a stabbing. A broad over here. sweep. Yes. Uh, so that's that's the name of the game. That's how we play it. The points don't matter only to Kathleen and I, but here we are. Paul, they matter. What is our word today? Okay, so your word for today is drukit. Another dr, another one that's hard for Natalie to say. Uh, drukit. Leave me and my speech impediments alone. It's it would be too easy if it was like fuck it. I know that's immediately where my. <laughs> Uh, um, Drukit uh, is the full word, right? Yeah. yeah. Drukit, yes, okay. as in like, say, D-R-O-O-K-I-T, for okay. example. Drukit. 
Well, we had we had sleek it, so I, I know. Wonder. <laughs> but we also had but we also had uh, trik, and I wonder uh, if it has oh, to do no. with that because the sound. So I'm gonna say it means it means you're wet, wet, with an wet, wet with wet. a hard H. Cool whip. <laughs> cool whip. <laughs> Ooh. What about you? What about you, Wait. Kathleen? I'm, you? I'm working on it. I'm not as fast. Uh, let me think. Three, I drew four. the map for you and everything. I can't say the same thing you did. That's true. <laughs> uh, through I gave. I made. I made an etymological argument. So broken. I'm gonna say broken. Because if something's broken, you just say nah. Through it kid. sounds like it sounds like a name. It like kaput is in German. It sounds like it's breaking. Druk it sounds like you broke it. You druk it, you buy it. Paul. <laughs> yeah. Paul, let's put the ladies out their misery. I mean, I do like the I do like the fact that it's just like it's like fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yep. like you know what, druk it. <laughs> yep. Um, but. Natalie, this is your day. It means oh no, absolutely. But like Back more than wet, it means like completely like drenched to the bone, like absolutely. So on the dreekest and dreekest of days, you come in and you're just like absolutely dripping wet. Feel like you've drunk it. Yeah. So I win. One could say that then she could fall and be broken. That is oh, true. No. I could slip. There's always a little, there's always a little kind of avenue that you go down, Kathleen. You try. I've got to. Listen, I've got I'm, to. We can she's make not anything work. <laughs> Language is entirely made up, so we can make anything work in our favor. I mean, and how do we even know that these are real Scots words? We're right. Just We're just trusting you. I corroborate you. Paul's word. You're not a reliable you. You're not source. <laughs> People just turned on Adam so fast. <laughs> Oh my well, god. Did our new co host of the show will be Paul Tinto. Paul Tinto. Uh, <laughs> stay breezy. <laughs> All right, Paul. This has been his audition, and let me tell you, he is nailed he's it. Nailing. You said at the beginning of the show that he's always like booked and busy, so we're just. Yeah. You know? yeah. That doesn't mean he gets to take this one. Okay. Well, well. <laughs> We're going to settle this, Recast. but in the meantime, we're going to go back to the episode. Great. No. So, Paul. Yes. Why have you come to Under the Kilt today? Because I was asked. No, no, no. <laughs> because... Uh, so recently, actually, I've stumbled across having gone through this big uh, workers' history of Scotland book. I came across uh, <laughs> the 1790s, and um, just a didn't know just, that they existed before. No, I didn't know they existed. Thought it went from 1780 <laughs> to 1800. <laughs> Everyone slept, and you know, <laughs> we just hibernated happened. for a decade. Exactly, and turned out it was like the most fascinating. Um, in my mind, one of the most fascinating decades of Scotland's history. And, I mean, sadly, we don't have enough time to cover all 10 years, nor do I know much about all 10 years. <laughs> no, 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 no. Paul is an expert on all of the 1790s of Scottish history. He is restraining himself to make sure that he can tell us a bite-sized story. This is a five-hour special. 
Go famously, Paul. famously. <laughs> but so, but on reading a lot about it, I realised, I, as so many history books do, you realise that all of the characters are that are coming up are um, they're all men, and you start to like I started to wonder. I was like, well, hang, what were the like what were the women doing through this? And so I had to start researching a lot more to try and find like influential women of the period, um, which brought me to this. Uh, there's no other way of saying it really, this massacre, to be honest, it's called the Massacre of Trannan, or the Trannan Massacre, which uh-huh. was in East Lothian. And it's kind of like, I suppose the closest thing to attribute it to is the Peterloo Massacre, which is right, a lot yeah. more widely known. Um, <clears throat> but, like, Trannan is not known at all. Um, but anyway, to track back slightly, what I didn't appreciate about the 1790s is the only thing I could really pinpoint it to was Robert Burns. That was the only person knew who was, um, who existed in the seventeen nineties in Scotland, and uh, and lo and behold, I didn't realise because so let's say from the wake of the American Wars of Independence in the seventeen seventies and then through into the French Revolution, the French Revolution had a massive massive impact on the movements in Scotland, and it was around the same time that Thomas Paine or Thomas Paine had written his book The Rights of Man which had come out and taken influence from what George Washington was saying over in America and uh, it was and it was supporting the French Revolution and obviously around the time loads and loads of European countries were getting very very scared and this The Rights of Man is basically the whole book basically questions the logic of um monarch rule and people that believe they've got the divine right to rule a country because of some some god-given gift they've got and commenting on everyone's right for existence and everyone's right to um, prosper and basically democratic rights and democracy wasn't a thing in Scotland and nor had it really been like an idea that was potentially talked of and then this book comes out and people start taking notice and there's a few people in particular who I'm not really going to go in on this but people that every Scottish person should know and there's a statue of them in Edinburgh but I reckon most 99% of people that walk by will not know who they are it's a guy called Tom Muir Thomas Muir and then there was a couple of others uh, William Scurving and uh, Thingamy Fish Palmer, can't remember. <laughs> can't remember it's his a first Scottish name. name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, there's a couple of others, but essentially, they started or they were the co-founders of this thing in Scotland that was called at the time it was called the Friends of the People, I think. And essentially, these bunch of people got together. They started reading the Rights of Man, thinking, "This is this is spot on the money." They started. They were in support of the French Revolution, or at least at the time, what was going on there. And they started to drum up support in people around Scotland um, and kind of just talking about these ideas of democracy. And this scared the the elites a lot. And at the time, the main guy, basically what he was called the King of Scotland at the time, this a guy called Henry Dundas, which is a very, very controversial figure in Scotland. He was one of the guys, I think he's got a statue in Edinburgh, and when all of the statues were being torn down at the time of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, his was one of the ones that came into question because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he prolonged the abolition of slavery. Some might argue that he 
was an advocate for it and for slowing the process down. They would say he was slowing it down so it actually got through in its full measure rather than just saying it has to cut off now and it would never get through. Mm-hmm. But then there's lots of people that would say, no, he was he was just prolonging it and for the for the benefit of all the rich kids that were kicking around at the same time. Uh-huh. But he was a really influential player. He was right in the pocket of the Prime Minister at the time, William Pitt, loved George. He was just a, completely of that establishment. And so he was not for anyone coming up and saying, democracy? You know, who yeah. let's, who's up for a bit of uh, who's up for a bit of rights of the people here? And um, <clears throat> so, Tom Muir, he lived in him. He had an incredible story anyway. He, he was he eventually he was tried for sedition, and uh, the the court case was a sham at the time. But it was a real like people loads of people came to Edinburgh to watch it. It was it was like it was kind of hot stuff, and he was tried for sedition along with a few others. They were all exiled to uh, Botany Bay. They were transported to Australia for a 14-year sentence. Um, Tom Muir ended up going on this incredible journey where he managed to escape, get to America, was then up captured on a Spanish ship, trying to make his way through back to France. A remarkable story. But all that the while... That story rings a bell. That story rings a bell, actually. Yeah, he... I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, I would. I, I could go down a rabbit hole with this. Oh, yeah, of course. He, uh, he, he escaped. He eventually escaped from Australia, from Botany Bay. He ended up in the coast, east, uh, the coast of America. And I think he was trying to. His dream was basically. I think he had. He, well, he knew he was outlawed from Scotland, and but he was basically trying to get through to the other coast of America, thinking he was going to have a little chat with George Washington. I mean, his name was getting pretty well known and stuff. He was a, he was a, f- a fairly big player. They loved him in France. Um, but before he could even get anywhere near that coast, he got into another ship, navigated himself down on a Spanish ship, ended up in Cuba, got arrested in Cuba, uh, was taken. The Spanish realised who they had and were going to imprison him back in Spain. He ends up going back to Spain. There's a sh- battle on a ship between Britain and Sp- Britain and Spain when they're coming into dock. A cannon ends up coming through blasting away half his cheek how he, I'm not sure how he managed to get away whether they didn't recognise him when the British came and took over the ship or whether they just let him go don't know, he ended up in a Spanish cell for ages France eventually negotiated his release to France this is over like the space of a few years I mean, an incredible, incredible story and all the while yeah. he's trying to write letters back to Scotland and try to in some way still navigate where the rise of potential revolution is coming because this mm-hmm. friends of the people thing that he was part of starting off or that he was very much in the mix of that turned into something which was called the united scotsman which or the united scots which was similar to the revolutionary group in, in ireland the united the united irishman yep and they so there were, there were movements going around. And at the time, this is the other really fascinating thing about the, the 1790s, there, there was so much, there were so many informants kicking around as well. The government were employing, the government were employing spies or employing people to come in and try and infiltrate these groups. And eventually the United Scots started to fragment themselves off into much smaller groups so they were harder to detect because it was, if you were caught, you were tried um, for sedition or it was it was game over. And um, oh, actually, this as <laughs> a slight, slight segue. There was a guy. What's his name? Robert Watt. I think his name was. 
he was he was employed by Henry Dundas and Henry Dundas's nephew Robert Dundas, who was a Lord Advocate for Scotland at the time. He was employed by them to be an informant, and he, not long after Thomas Muir had been sent away, um, there was still talk of potential weapons coming in through France or coming in through somewhere to Scotland, and there was talk of like I've heard rumor, heard rumors of revolution kicking up, and we need to try and stamp this out. So eventually, somebody finds these what could be perceived as weapons, probably like fence like fence heads and mop sticks stuff that when you put them together Very they dangerous. could all look like spikes yeah um so they end up at this guy's house robert watt's house and that's where they're found and so he's arrested and i think he was kind of like he's like don't worry guys i've got this it'll all be explained yep you can tell me to quote but i'm pals with i'm pals with good old henry i'm pals with robert the dundasses it'll all be sorted out so he goes to court and um when it comes to it, Henry Dundas is like, uh, you, yeah, I think I've I've received one or two letters from him, but I, I think it's my nephew that deals with that. And then Robert Dundas basically said, oh, yeah, I had a few letters from him, but not since the last one was months and months and months ago. I've, I don't really know anything about him. So they completely fed him to the dogs, and then he was um, he was tried for treason, and he was hung, drawn, and quartered. Jeez. Jeez. Brutal. Oh. I know. Oof. Um, so yeah, Robert, he came to a sticky end. Yeah, well, it's 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 funny you were you you brought that up, dude, because I know that the, um, from the seventeen nineties to the eighteen hundreds, that that I I know that the merchants in Glasgow, for instance, were were watching France and they were saying we we don't want that happening. <laughs> and there's a theory, although it's not written down, uh, you know, it's not explicit. But um, there is a theory, and if you look at all the kind of evidence as a big kind of jigsaw, you can tell that the elite were wanting to kind of protect the status quo. And lo and behold, George III rubber-stamped the Police Scotland Act, which basically made the police professional in Glasgow. Up until that point, they tried twice and failed. And then all of a sudden, it was rubber-stamped. And they were there as a, almost like a private security to the merchants. Well, so when did that come in? When was the... 1800. Like bang on 1800. And the and going back, there was a guy called uh, John King of Anderston uh, who was deemed a, a, a hero of the Union because he, was, he infiltrated the 45 uh, who were going to have an uprising. And they were meeting the United Scotsmen and the United Irish were... Because the Irish were coming into Glasgow at a rate of knots, like the, I think yeah. uh, during that time, the the um you know the uh, there was a whole load of uh, Irish uh, immigrants that came across to to Glasgow, yeah, and um, and they realised that they they kind of felt the same about the union and stuff. So those kind of conversations started happening, and that's when John King of Anderson was dropped into that and was feeding back to Westminster what exactly was happening so it's it's that's funny you you brought all that up but yeah but what's what's more interesting for that for me is, is that sounds like because one of the one of the main things that I picked up while I was reading all of this stuff and which is leads me on to the actual massacre that I mentioned at the start yeah. was the militia act which <clears throat> sounds like it was kind of like a. It sounds like it was some sort. It was definitely a precursor to the police, or it was another attempt of basically trying to put people in to enforce um, things that were uh, civil unrest. Yeah. Because at the time, 
so yeah, everything is seeming very, very hot and bubbly under the surface. And also, and this is the point I was making about Robert Burns, is when you look at his stuff, and especially when you look at like our old national anthems, Scots Wahe, and you look at poems like A Man's a Man, they are so uh, rich with revolutionary sentiment. Of course. And it's interesting to try and suddenly put that into the context. Robert Burns, I think he definitely knew of Robert uh, of Tom Muir's trial at the time, and I think actually there's some lines in Scots Wahe which um, reference the trial when he's referencing uh, a par- a, uh, a parcel of rogues and all that sort of stuff. He's definitely referencing the Westminster elite. And then if you look at the last line of or the last verse of "A Man's a Man," then come at me. Uh, then let us pray that come at me. It's come at well for all that. that sense and worth all the earth may bear the grief for all that. Uh, for all that and all that it's coming yet for all that the man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that he released that I think or he sent that to publishing in 1795 when all of this stuff was at its proper heat yeah so yeah I digress <laughs> we like a digress digression digression so he so yes Scotland's bubbling up with lots of revolutionary movement. People are getting tried for sedition right, left and centre. Loads of informants coming around to try and push down uh, the United Scots movement. And then the other thing that was going on, because Britain were at war, they were lining up for war against France. They were having wars with everyone, it's, it seems to be. There was, there was always, like, literally, you know, it could be like, here, hear about that ship that's just, that Spanish ship that's just come over from America with a ton of gold on it going to land in Cadiz do you want to go and want to go and cannon it like yeah let's go <laughs> I think mean, it was just it I don't was have any other plans so yeah I was like yeah let's take a ship out and let's go and try and loot some gold but so all of this was rinsing the country's economy and there was a real rise in people in desertion in uh, military desertion and in naval desertion because people weren't getting paid and uh, this became a massive problem and they were they were trying to encourage more volunteers to come in the propaganda was going up and up and up but eventually William Pitt the Prime Minister um, and Henry Dundas eventually they said okay right we're going to have to maybe push the wage up a little bit to encourage people to come in and around the same time um, they were like so yeah good news we're going to give you a little bit more money come and, come and join the army and some people were like alright yay Says, and also we're going to bring this thing called the Militia Act and everyone was like what? Sorry, what? <laughs> what's the was the Militia Act, and the Militia Act had been brought in in, in England a long time ago for, for years and years. It was basically landowners or like lord lieutenants, which were basically rich people that ran land and, and were landlords. They had the power to enlist uh, small little armies for their area to try and well do whoever's bidding but this had been they tried to implement this in Scotland quite a few times and it had they'd always stood back against it because they knew it would cause like potential well civil unrest yeah and, more trouble than it's worth and the yeah and Scotland weirdly like Scotland for having a history of we've got such a military history but there's loads of evidence to suggest that Scotland's never been a country that has really been that in favour of kind of king and country um, I think there's more evidence to suggest that lots of the people that were joining the army were doing so just out of financial hardship yeah. and 
there's lots of cases where well i mean the, the militia act is a perfect example where they never brought this brought this in because there was so much always so much protest against it and even at the time when i think they were trying to look for support and fighting for or enlisting more people to fight in the uh, american wars of independence they didn't apparently they didn't give they, they didn't let, let lots of scots go because they weren't sure what people Which especially side in the west of Scotland. Yeah, and they weren't sure what people in the parallel, especially in the west of Scotland. I don't know why in the west of Scotland, but they were like, We don't want to give people we don't want to give those people guns. <laughs> they were really, really apprehensive of what people would do if they gave them weapons. They were like, No, no, just hold them back. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that it seems like they simultaneously were like, How can we deputize the Scots to police the Scots? Like, how can we deputize the like civilians to watch other like basically just really organized or really aggressive neighborhood watch but then at the same time how can we do it without arming them in case we don't know who we can actually trust and also the scots were probably like yeah sure i'll join your militia i'm not gonna fucking tattle on my grandma though like <laughs> like grand runs a brothel i'm gonna let that keep going i don't care <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also, like, the, I think there were some Scots that were now, by this time, off probably fighting in Britain's wars overseas. So the ones that were left, especially this time, the ones that were left, I don't think the British government could trust them. were like, oh, I mean, Culloden's still in living memory for lots of people. There's still a lot of people that would probably still favour the Stuarts and the Jacobites. They were like, I'm not sure we can trust the ones that are left. <laughs> it's like, we don't have the men to spare from England, but also... Oh, can you? Should we trust them? Can we just they give them are. like pointy sticks? <laughs> that fine. <Yeah. laughs> so it was it was a real problem, but eventually by but by 1797, they had to give in. They were like, "All right, we're going to enforce this militia act here." The plan was to bring in to raise a militia of six thousand Scots that would that were between the age of 19 and 23 and there were some exemptions i think if you are too poor and you had over a couple of children you were maybe exempt if you were infirm you were exempt you could also buy your way out so you know and this is what everyone realized like all right well this is just going to hit the poorest those that can't buy their way out those that are in maybe need of some money but also those that are of the prime age where they're the keyest work the the biggest key workers for the family or for the farms or whatever it was going to pull out the best of society and they knew that a they didn't want their sons just going to fight against like one town over or fight against people they probably stood up for but b they also knew that they would end up just being cannon fodder for whenever westminster wanted to ship them off and say right now you're going to go and fight fight france so as soon as this happened there was uh protests everywhere like they 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 sprang up right left and center and the way this was meant to happen is that the let's say the person looking over each little area each county they were to get they were to find who was eligible from the parish lists so they'd go to either the schoolhouse or they'd go to the parish find the parish register and from that they would take that they would take the names and there was cases where like locals would go and find the find the schoolmasters, find the um, parish representatives, force them to 
give over their lists before before it happened or i think in some cases they went and they went and set fire to some schoolhouses and refused to help until the person in charge agreed to give over the parish lists or the parish books or they would break in they would rip out the pages or they they i mean it must there have been were quite... not were there not copies of of these lists right <laughs> Don't know. I like I like the idea that it's like if we destroy the original, that's it. <laughs> but then, to be honest, like I wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it's like the photocopiers are all up in the north of Scotland right now. They're not going to get down here until <laughs> a few weeks. Yeah. With their scribes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. two scribes just plodding along the horses. God, we're knackered. <laughs> I've been yeah. writing all day. I've got to get Sterling before sunset. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. But um, so yeah, so these protests started happening everywhere, and but they were remarkably effective to the point where uh, the authorities had start saying, "Guys, you need to start sending infantry up from England." And this is the other interesting thing: the Scottish militia wouldn't be able to serve the way it was written. I think the Scottish militia wouldn't be able to serve in England, but all the English militias were allowed to come up and um, fight and suppress Scottish revolts. So there's loads of instances. Naturally, of course, of course. Things I'm Why changing. break with tradition? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so these things happen far and wide, and to great effect, there was lots of cases where they would essentially, like, like locals would go and manhandle the authorities and force them to sign these, albeit maybe unofficial documents, but like it was either sign this or we're going to beat the crap out of you. Yeah. And saying that you're not going to enforce this militia act in our town. And these started bubbling up. Some of them were probably more organised than others. A lot of them were probably just local community protests. And then, but the one that really kicked off, I mean, I think lots kicked off around, but the one that's kind of most recorded is what's to be known as the Massacre of Trannan. <laughs> Nat, can I just can I just ask before we crack on with this episode, how is your Scottish accent getting on? Wow, I thought you would never. I hoped you would you would never ask. Um, well, I don't know. There's only one way to find out. Can we bring yeah. Kathleen on to tell me what my line is today? Okay, let's do it. My, this is my favorite part of my life right now, uh, Natalie. <laughs> the quote I'm going to give you is from the 2012 film The Hunger Games, and the oh. quote is. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Enjoy those R's. Yeah. I have a feeling we're going to take a trip to Ireland again. <laughs> I've, got, I've, I've got uber confidence in you. Let's do it. All right. And may the odds be ever in your favor. A little, okay. a little, a little, a little Irish. bit. A little Irish. Like you'd had a really hard knock on the head. And maybe... <laughs> <laughs> and may the really odds, odd, I can't do short or, short vowels, odds. Odds. odds, odds be ever in, instead of in, I know that vowel, in. your favor. I can't do Fever. ever or, fa- I can't do, sorry, If there, I wish I could say I didn't do that on purpose, but I did. And this is when we ask our guest to critique. Oh God. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. <laughs> be honest, be honest, Paul. You want to give it one more go, Natalie? Now that you've had some little, a few, few. It's gonna get worse as I repeat nah. it. 
No, no, go for it. Just go bold. Go hard. Go hard or go home. And you're already Just home. be as angry as possible when I say it, because that's what a Scottish accent is. Just an angry Irish accent, right? <laughs> and may the odds be ever in your favour. Well, that was actually better. See? Go hard. You hit odds perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she you needs did. to just be angry every time. You need to be an old, <laughs> angry like, man. But I feel like then I'm perpetuating a stereotype about well, Scotland. I mean, but it's... Well, obviously it works. That's how you get into the Scottish accent. Just be oh, yeah. really angry. You, you, you and the Simpsons get so you get into that. That's how you do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Grinky you know? Billy, he's angry all the time. Maybe that's how he gets into it. Oh I mean, look, I think on this podcast we've studied enough Scottish history that to be like, you have, there's just cause for the Scottish accent to sound angry. Yeah, that's true. Especially after today's episode. There is an interesting thing though, like, cause you like you you hit like, it's it's a very very good impression of like what Americans <laughs> someone Scottish. Trying, <laughs> yeah, it's like I can't I don't know what it is like the same things always always happen like the word favor is a really good example of like I don't know what it is it's really hard to put your finger on like where I would love to try and figure out like what goes how it how someone else hears it or how an American hears it because the same sounds are always the ones that trip people up. Do you agree, Adam? Yeah, yeah. People, I think when people do a Scottish accent and they always default to a kind of West Coast Glaswegian esque singing song, you kind of oh now, do that kind of accent. Like people kind of default to that, but like yeah, it's like they'll they'll try and do that on it almost every word. Yeah, yeah. There's if quite often I get like friends will message me saying, "Oh, can you like can you listen to this Scottish accent or whatever?" Um, and the one thing I always try and say is like, "Don't, don't go too hard in your R's." Like when yeah. people start to tap all of their R's, that's when you're like, you're, "It's just you're." Just or roll them. Ridiculous. Or roll them. Yeah, roll yeah. them. Well, the good news is that I cannot roll my R's, so that's. There you are. But I do. I it is. It is every time we we do one of these. I'm like, okay, which, which get tapped and which don't. Well, ours. No, ours. which of them? Yeah, they they all do. Well, I mean, to be honest, I think they it's like really. I think it's whatever. I'd say my rule is like whatever makes it easier to say, because the only reason the only reason tapped ours are a thing is because it's like it's developed as a speech habit where people have found it easier to bounce on to the next word because of that. Like, uh, my accent, like, if you were to go all the way, th- like, the West Coast on the mainland, it gets really, really, really thick. But then as soon as you jump the water, it really softens out a lot. Like, I wouldn't... Like, I That's wouldn't. because you guys are on island time. <laughs> island time, you know. Doors open, time. no keys. Exactly. Stars. We don't need... Yeah, things are moving a little bit slower. <laughs> We don't have to rush and tap our arse. We got time. We're fine. We're fine. We got time. <laughs> I mean, and to bring it back to being all about me, the first and only time I was ever in a dialect class that somebody even passingly talked about a Scottish accent, uh, they literally just said, "Make like, oh, it's similar to the Irish one, but like angrier." And that's like literally always. It's like, and that is Scots. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a quick question uh, Go for it. about the about the massacre. Is it known yeah. in so is it is it known as a massacre or is it in like 
Would the English call it a massacre? Would the English call it a riot? I ask because there are there are like major historical events that it's like depending on who's telling the narrative. The one that comes to mind is the Haymarket Affair, which is either called the Haymarket Affair, if you want to be on the fence between teams, the Haymarket Riot, if you are on the like side of the of like the police and the law or the Haymarket Massacre if you're on the side of the labor movement in the United States. So I'm curious if it's if the massacre of Trannan is act, is like called that that is it. We understand that it was a massacre and we accept and own the responsibility for whether we were the ones massacring or ma- really really good question. And cuz I think I think you would look at it as I think you would look at it as a riot. And I think why it's been branded a massacre is purely because of the way the infantry ended up dealing with the situation. Because even numbers-wise, it's not like not that many people died. I mean, like really, really small. I mean, I think there's only I th- there's I don't know. There's maybe only like tw- eleven, twelve, thirteen recorded deaths. Bear in mind, this is at a time when you had to pay for a death. For your death to be registered, you had to pay for it. So there's there's a good argument. There was lots that weren't. But I don't know I've, if I don't know if like historically speaking, like a massacre has to have uh, a certain volume of of deaths. I think it's more of like who who was armed versus or like who was the oppressed party and who was armed. Yeah, <laughs> but that, yeah. yeah, in this case. Yeah, one one crowd had um, sticks and stones, the others had um, pistols and yeah. carabines and were on horses. So they on the the night bef- the night before, I think I think the way this was meant to happen is that lots of parish, or lots of schoolmasters or or parish ministers or whoever would be taking their lists to a certain place and then they would look at the numbers and from there it was random as well. They would just ballot out these random names so the night before they're in Tranent there have been lots of protests around in the street and trying to drum up support for uh, people to stand against this and they they knew it was like the authorities knew it was getting really heated so they had asked in advance like guys you need to get some more infantry up here so suddenly from uh, from Various places in England, you had infantry coming up. So on the day that this was happening at this pub, you had these officials and landowners and rich people hanging about in this pub, looking at these like looking at these lists. And outside, there was a growing there was a growing crowd, and they were all there shouting, "No militia, no militia!" Ready to have ready with their sticks and stones. And we had like women, children. Uh, men, like everyone out and the reason I came across this story is because there was a, a woman called Joanna Jackie Crookston who there's a statue now for her in Tranent. she's got this drum she's the one that supposed, supposedly was the one that was beating the drum and was a, was at the forefront of this what of was this her name? Protest. What's her name? Ja- ja- Joanna or Jackie Crookston or Joan Crookston cool and so she is she's been sort of yeah, endowed as one of the main leader figures of this protest. So on the day, on the day they're there, and the people are inside making these lists, and then you've got the military outside, and they were very careful at the start. The infantry were told not to go and stand in front of the pub, um, 
in fear that would cause more protest. Yeah. And just tensions. Yeah, just complete tension. They were like, we're going to have to play this really, really carefully. And at one point, one of the guys, one of the leaders came out and, or he, or he started shouting from the window because um, I think they wanted to give people, they wanted to give some people uh, opportunity to object. Or I think like if they read it a name, you had the opportunity to, to object. So he started calling out the window and then people were like, we can't hear you, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. Because everyone was chanting. It's like, come down, come down and we can't hear you. So this guy... What? Pretty bravely. I'm shouting. Can I hear you? Come out the door and come and stand with us here. So he goes. He goes. He goes outside the pub. He goes and stands. He goes and stands in the street. That he gets completely encircled by lots of people, and he starts reading out. I don't know the rules of the 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 rules of this proposed militia act, and they basically tell him uncertain terms. Well, you can go fuck yourself. That's, that's not. That's like, not thank happening. Thank you so much for coming out, so that we can hear you clearly, so that you can hear us clearly when we say "fuck off." Yeah, pretty much. Just like glad we've got all that sorted out. Now go fuck yourself. So he's just sitting there. He's just sitting there, and he's like, "You, you could hear me all along, couldn't you?" And they're like, "Yeah." I'm, am I allowed to? Am I allowed to go back inside now? He's like. You dare. <laughs> you can try. You can try. So he then decides, he's like, all right, I'm going to go back in. And then he gives people the time to come up to the door. And if they, if anyone's got personal objections, by this point, people are all started, People are already shouting. People are already chanting. And then this guy comes up saying, yeah, I've got an objection. So they let him in. And he hands over this piece of paper to them. He, they think this is a legitimate thing. It's like, okay, what have you, are you going to buy yourself out or whatever? And, and it's a drawing of somebody <laughs> kissing his ass. <laughs> yeah. He brings out this piece of paper. And um, it's the one thing that I've written down. It's basically this set of rules. And he says, it's basically these these four, these four things that have been written up by the, by the townspeople. And it's basically, um, it's, a it's a declaration of their resolutions. It's like, one, we declare that we unanimously disapprove of the late Act of Parliament for raising 6,000 militiamen in Scotland, that we assist each other in endeavouring a repeal said Act, that we are peaceably disposed, and should you, endeavouring to execute said Act, urge us to adopt a coercive measures, we must look upon you to be the aggressors and as responsible to the nation for all the consequences that may follow. And finally... Although we may be empowered in effecting the said resolution and dragged from our parents, friends and employments to be made soldiers of, you may infer from us what trust can be reposed in us if ever we are called to, upon to disperse our fellow countrymen or oppose a foreign foe. Whoa. So he hands the, he hands this piece of paper. And the other thing, it's signed by everyone, but it's signed by them in a circle. It was what was called a round robin at the time, so no one could ever be tried for being the leader of it. So instead of like ah. having the first name, I think if you had the first name, that maybe be assumed that you were the leader of this party. All the names were written in a circle, so uh -huh. so it was basically unanimous, hey. or or you can yeah. you, can, you can try anyone. That's clever. So these guys are livid with this, and they're like, "Get the fuck out!" Stop wasting our time. We're going through with this. So he leaves, and then not long after, stones start to be thrown at the windows. So stones are thrown at the windows, people start chanting, they start being a bit more aggressive. The infantry start to 
uh, get a little bit more heated. At this point, someone <laughs> leans out the window, another authority figure leans out the window to start trying to read out the riot act. <laughs> Just this job's worth that's basically just like trying to shout over this massive crowd to say like, excuse no guys, if you, I think you'll find you're impinging on. They have a, they have like a, they have like a flow chart in the back that's like, okay, uh, here's the rules. Here's what we have to do announcing the militia act and enforcing it. If they react this way, we yeah, have to no. do this. If they react this way, pull this, press this button. Just... <laughs> oh yeah, I love this idea of them all sitting in this pub like, guys, what do we do? What, do? what do we do? What do we do? And it's like, don't worry, guys, I've got it. It's like, I'm just going to pop my head out the window and yeah. read this riot act. This will calm down. Yeah, before that, I they're like, really... what we don't want is fire pan and fire kind of thing, right? So what are you going to do? I'm going to read this. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't think that they understand what they're doing <laughs> yeah. and that it would be considered a riot and that means... <laughs> no, just make sure said... they know. <laughs> Yeah, the other guy sitting at the desk like, mate, he's protesting against the letter of the law. I don't think that piece of paper's going to do anything. I'm going to read him this other letter of the law. Yeah. <laughs> this one I'm, is, the, is a crowd favourite, I'm sure. <laughs> I know, the list of this one, trust me, especially with my bellowing voice. <laughs> <laughs> this time they'll be able to hear me from the window clearly as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. So he pops his head out the window, starts reading this, and then he starts getting loads of stones chucked at him. Of course. At which point, somebody, and this is the thing, nobody knows who it was that told the infantry to get into action. Because I think at the time it was still, like, uh, let's say a Lord Lieutenant's job to do that, i.e. the person of the town that says, right, infantry, go and do, the, go and do your thing. So the first thing they started doing was firing their pistols into the air, but firing blanks. So they had the... They had gunshot in it, but they didn't have the balls. Right. But they think that they thought that would maybe disperse people, scare people off. It kind of more just rioted people up, and um, and I think obviously I think at the time people probably knew like how effective or ineffective pistols were or could be. So most people are really just going to take their chance with this. So then they start the people start going into the side streets to get into higher vantage point start throwing more stones at the at the pub and stuff and just basically try and surround it more and then somebody somewhere don't know who no one has never known who but someone clearly gave the order for the infantry to go and then they started gunning it down the street with their horses lots of them got off their horses ditched their pistols and got out their carabines which were essentially like much more effective guns much more powerful guns and everything got really heated and all this like loads of soldiers just went crazy and they started gunning it down the streets and just swaying people either with their guns or with their swords everything out and just start hacking people down right left and center um but the the it wasn't the thing was it wasn't just like in this in the vicinity in, in the immediate vicinity that this happened you can understand maybe them gunning it down just to try and clear the streets and, and calm things down but they started bombing it through the fields and they started basically bombing it through to towns villages sorry like mile mile and a half two miles far and like far and wide around this area and just hacking people down um 
wherever they could. And there were lots of innocent people that were coming into the village not knowing what was going on or just trying to go about their daily work. And there's there's some accounts. There's one one of the saddest accounts was a guy, his name was like William Moffat. He was working in a field with a, with a friend. His friend, I think, was shot. He started running. He had nothing to do with the riot at all. He started running through the field. He was chased by two soldiers um, who were on foot. One of them fired at him, missed, and I think he maybe tripped. And But the other ones kept pursuing him. And then, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous in a way, he dropped his hat, or I think he tripped and his hat fell off, and he shouted to the guy to tell him to stop and told him, demanded him to come and pick up his hat. And he said, if you stop and you come and pick up my hat, we'll let you go safe, we'll let you go free. So this guy turns around, thinks, all right, walks up, picks up this guy's helmet, gives it back to him. They look each other in the eyes, like, okay, starts walking away, and then the guy just shot him in the back. Oh, my God. And so there was accounts, there was just, these were the accounts that just people, innocent people that had come in just to do their do their thing and didn't know what was going on and were just scythed down right, left and centre. Wow. And kids as well. There was cases of, there was one terrible incident of a kid who had been, uh, who ended up getting caught up in the, in the melee of it. A guy rode past him, slashed his sword at him, completely like, cut his left arm bleeding out bleeding out bleeding out he survived he started like heading home bumped into two friends in the way and uh, for whatever reason they ended up detouring to get back home another way they ended up getting caught by another bunch of infantry and then one of the kids ended up dying the other one I think was hurt and then the boy that had been slashed in the first place the same soldier ran up to him and said it's like you were the bastard that I got before and swiped at him again, swiped at his face and swiped at his head. Miraculously, this boy survived. I think his name was Blair. He ended up becoming a a parish minister and and obviously never forgot his experience in the Tran riots. And so he's like one of the cases that has, that's, that's got written evidence of it. So it was a, the whole thing probably lasted only about half an hour, hour tops. And uh, eventually the crowds dispersed, everything was pummeled down, people died, loads of people were injured, loads of people were wounded, loads of people were arrested. Um, One guy that apparently was arrested (laughs) and put into prison, when they found him, they were like, when they demanded his name, he just said, I'm Henry Dundas. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like the equivalent, yeah, it's like the equivalent of saying I'm Boris Johnson or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Being arrested. so this all happened people were taken to court and obviously lo and behold none of the none of the infantry were they tried to bring some of the infantry to trial none of them were brought to trial of course and everything was just pushed down and the accounts there were there were some papers in the press at the time that tried to write reports in support of the locals yeah but any of them that came out were just hounded and so it was like the propaganda machine came down on them. Yeah. Some people were outlawed. Some people ran. Loads of people fled the country before they were tried because they thought they would get tried for sedition. So yeah. you had lots of people just buggering off to France, yeah. Germany, mm-hmm. and just running. Ireland, whatever they could get. Um, and 
and and that was you know the militia act eventually was put in place eventually everywhere in scotland they managed to drum it down and they also took that as an, a, a time to try and fight harder against the united scots who i don't think the united scots and them and the the militia act riots and protests they were i think two pretty much separate things there's not much evidence to suggest they were organized by the united scots but no no they they, they were getting done with sedition the united scots yeah yeah, yeah. but on, they took it as an excuse militia. just to yeah they took it as an excuse to, to go out and find more of them so eventually by 1800s and at this time i think the united irish have been had taken some pretty heavy defeats as well mm-hmm. um the, and the uh, the establishment won i'm not sure when the militia act eventually was finished i think it was like maybe 1815 by that time the, poli- the police had been brought in and stuff yeah but also the support for the french revolution started to waver because then bonaparte started to get like bit too big for his boots and some people were like Ooh, <laughs> not a fan of the British but I'm not sure I'm not sure where the French are going with this <laughs> yeah, no. maybe that's where the mentality of um, let's just you know stay where we are with the things that we know <laughs> yeah I know yeah pretty much but yeah but that is that, is that. and they were it's something that's not really known about at all but it's like a tiny tiny little day in scottish history which was devastating for for loads and loads of people and was kind of very representative of people trying to um fight for the rights of the time in a time when scotland's you know because very recently when you think of that incident when loads of people came out in glasgow to stop that guy getting that was getting put into the immigration and was going to get taken away into the immigration uh van and how people just came came out and really ra- rallied rallied that and it's sort of reading all of these accounts of sort of local community just sort of like really getting together and just local protest it's so weirdly so it felt so reminiscent but now we're living in a time where sort of union action is so much harder to collate because thatcher did such a good job of sort of tearing it apart but. yeah I mean, and, and at this time, what, I mean, the, the Union, 1707, what, like 80, 80 odd years, 83 years or something like that, um, had been on the go. And it's still, there's still, there was still that kind of, you know, oh, I'm, tension uh, all the time. And at that, and at that moment that you're, you've spoken about tonight, Paul, which has been fascinating, um, I mean, Glasgow used to riot just for shits and giggles. You know, like people, like, I mean, the, the riots would kick off for anything and last for hours. Do you know what I mean? So, like, <laughs> them going about trying to come up and play the high and mighty just was never going to, like, I was never going to sit well with anyone. No. And actually, that's one of the things from reading through, like, this, like, um, workers history of scotland book you lose track because everywhere is just like well hang on who's who's protesting who's writing now is it the millers no it's the weavers no oh no it's the miners no all right no oh it's the yeah. shipbuilders like christ now it's the weavers but like the miners have joined them yeah 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 because they would just want to fight that day yeah <laughs> no I'm, I'm belittling their kind of like stance but like yeah yeah it's like there was that's that's how they that's how they sorted out their problems back in the day especially at that time you just spoke about yeah and then we do have a really really rich history of not just of rising up but loads of success stories i mean you could yeah. call that that wasn't that one and that not in that instance was a success story but actually around the country they did manage to at least hold back 
lots of those militia acts from passing in lots of those counties. And I think if you look through Scottish history, there are loads and loads and loads of success stories of um, of unions and communities rising up, rising up and yeah. being able to have a voice that's louder than authority and making and making change. And it feels like now more than ever, it's it's, more, it's so important to try and sort of remember those because it's like no, we can actually still. We, you still do have the power to actually have a voice if you can just mm-hmm. get together. We're not powerless. Yeah, I feel like this. I feel like this is a moment in history, Scotland's history, that needs to kind of get revisited, <laughs> and like people to go, "Sorry, that happened." By the way, and that wee boy Blair, I'm sorry. I mean, how how old was Blair? Like when he was getting trying to get murdered. He was just. I, he's just referred to as a boy. So I mean, like in my head, he's just like yeah, he's like a like a ten year old boy. And in and in the seventeen nineties, you were a man at thirteen. So yeah, yeah. So, like, <laughs> if you're a, if you're a boy, it's I I kind of back to what I had asked before about like what the weather history considers it a massacre. Now I just want to know if you were to study this same event in England, I want to know what they call it because like the Boston massacre, the the Brits call it the incident on King Street. Is, yeah. is what, we're like, mm, is was, that what it was? It, it was merely an incident. <laughs> a, a disagreement, if, uh, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Just Again, a small misunderstanding. Yeah. yeah. Whoever writes it. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, but that's it's like, it's, it's interesting. I like, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious if we went, if we, if we popped across to England and we're, and we're like, this, historical event you describe it you don't give it a name what what like not that again it's not even something that necessarily is covered every day in scottish history and uh, history education so they'd be like what now yeah who yeah. they'd be like where's trannan yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tran, Tran, what? never Tran, heard of her i was like no nah, nah, i don't know her don't know her east don't know her. Yeah. Is in the north is it <laughs> Trenton, New Jersey? No, no, that's Trenton. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you're right. It's probably, I mean, sadly, the incident isn't known well enough for anyone to probably have that debate. Mm -hmm. But it is depending on probably the the book you write. And it's even looking at some of the um, articles from it, if you look at something that's written in the 1800s, accounting for it, that's taken from uh, maybe a newspaper article, article at the time, which weirdly feels a lot more sympathetic towards authority to an extent than you are when you're reading books with hindsight of someone that's obviously packaging it within the 1790s Scottish um, sort of radical Scotland, if you like, of the 1790s, the birth of the the notion of democracy in Scotland, like around the 1790s. I love, I love reading a history book, like a book of nonfiction where the author is citing things and quoting things from the newspaper but also like has done the work of knowing that newspaper that sources politics because i love that shit when it's like here's the way it was reported and then the then the like the author narrator of the book goes that could be true but it could also be complete bullshit and here's why <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> because it was it was happening all the time there was like you know there was there was men being uh, charged with sedition and they were standing up in court and they were given these like beautiful monologues just off the top of their head as to why they believed and their actions were correct. And then the Herald or whatever newspaper it was, uh, it was like the Glasgow Courier or whatever, 
was were saying uh, they mumbled incoherently before being taken away to jail. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. no, they never. If that's incoherent, <laughs> then shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm literally an animal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love. I always love like whenever. To me, those are like the, the the easiest nonfiction books to read are the ones that, one, give me context to shit happening around me today. So that way I'm even more invested in it, no matter how old it is. But like also have that degree of, of authorial self-awareness of like, yes, every source that we have says that it happened this way. But if we're looking at the big, big picture some of that might not be true (laughs) and then like kind of putting it in your hands of being like it is open to interpretation because we don't know we don't have an unequivocal source on it but propaganda 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 machine that was fascinating paul yeah i swear at one one moment i looked up and (laughs) nat and i were like that (laughs) <laughs> for, for the listeners, I'm actually holding my chin just with my eyes wide open. <laughs> and I'm also holding Adam's chin with my eyes wide open. It's magic. It's all magic. It yeah. was really fascinating though, man. Thank you so much for that. That was oh, Thanks really... for letting me waffle on. No, no, it was great. Like getting a it... ton of stuff outside of my head. <laughs> that was riveting. Yeah. Uh, I was fully invested the entire time. Yeah. Uh, now I, when, when we're off, I'll give you a book recommendation that I've already given Adam because it sounds like it would, uh, partner well with, uh, the, the worker's history of Scotland that you read. Oh, I might pick it. up the worker's history of Scotland. Boy, it's a dense read. Fun read. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of date. We're starting all the way back in the Picts and we're not stopping. Until... Well, people have been working for a very long time in Scotland. So for Famously, telling their history. Yeah. Yeah. That's Famously. like challenge accepted. <laughs> I'm going to... I'm going to emerge from this podcast with a whole, like I already have a wealth of useless information <laughs> because I don't really ever study my own country's history anyway. But now I'm going to like roll into season five of shared history and only be get telling like stories from Scotland. <laughs> and my co-host Cass is going to be like, Natalie, branch out a little. Yeah. Stop <laughs> talking about your spinoff show. <laughs> like, yeah, first of all, we know we're listening to it. Secondly. <laughs> yeah. Why There's... is that relevant to the 1980s Nevada riots? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. There was a Scottish guy who was related to. <laughs> the no, Scots did it called... first. Yeah, apparently it was called McLeod, although that can't be verified. The newspaper articles aren't to be trusted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we've created a monster, and that monster is me. And I hold both of you responsible <laughs> to varying degrees. Um, I, I just love that story so, so, so much. Um, Paul, where can our listeners find out more about you or follow you on the social media or anything of that? Like, Ooh, that, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, my, my, my social media activity is appalling. Um, (laughs) well then we won't tell them to follow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, I did get 
so so riveted the other day that I decided to take a photo of um of an old pot I was making porridge on an old I stove. saw that I saw that's that what I, that's what I thought that's 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 the kind of content Instagram needs <laughs> I quite like the colours on it Paul it was a bright orange pot and a black stove it look I think it looked great thanks very much inspired you know <laughs> porridge in the morning and an old stove do you ever think that we all need an Adam McNamara in our life to just be like. Hey, that that thing that that you got three likes. I believe in you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought the colors exactly. were fantastic. <laughs> um, on on Instagram, I am p underscore tinto ten. That's me on Instagram. Yeah, why the number? I, I think tinto was uh, some <laughs> was probably Spanish or Portuguese person and probably taken <laughs> taken some <tinto>. winery. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Hi. <laughs> Some the 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 tradition of wine history got to me first. Got there first on Instagram. So I was left to start adding digits onto my name, and uh, on Twitter, I'm appalling at Twitter. I am attempting to get better. <clears throat> Maybe I'll just start posting st- random stuff about Scottish history that I discover and rebrand myself that way. <laughs> it is simpler. At Paul underscore Tinto. No ten. It's something you think I would remember. Not no ten, ten or twelve. <laughs> Exactly, dropped through. I got to, I got to Twitter first, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet the I bet the winery's like, fuck, now we've got to use ten. Damn Levid. Nat, could you remind everyone uh, our details? Oh, I'd love to. I also assume that this means that Adam doesn't know them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can follow uh, us on Instagram and Twitter at under the kilt pod. No spaces, no underscores, no tens. No numbers. No numbers. Uh, and if you have any, if you have any like questions, uh, or like if you want to roast Paul about something he got wrong, don't tell him. DM us. Yeah. Then <laughs> Leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. They, like, yeah. Leave it to the coast to roast me. Yeah. It's like you know, it's like no, no one else should give the actor a note, but the director. It's like yeah. if anyone wants to roast the actor, go to the director. The director will roast the actor. <laughs> we're a buffer. We're, yeah. we're a buffer for yeah, the pain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can email us too at uh, underthekiltpod at gmail dot com if you have uh, little nuggets of Scottish history that you wish it we could, would cover or that one of our guests would cover, et cetera. We welcome that. Yeah. If you want to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, I think that's the only platform you can rate and review on now. Um, look for, well, you might be listening to this on Apple Podcasts, so you've got it, but you've got to leave the rating and review on the Shared History Podcast page. We're all one buggy. Happy family. <laughs> and um, that's... That's all the deets. That's the deets. I have to, I have to reboot myself. Uh, so while I power cycle and reboot myself for the next episode, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll see you later. In the meantime, stay busy. This episode of Under the Kilt was edited and produced by Kathleen Mueller-Mason. Original theme by Tyler Collins, a.k.a. Two Meter Man. Additional music by Gareth Spin. Original art by Sarah Cruz. Thank you again to our guest, Paul Tinto, and to the girls at Shared History. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.